If you got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 was, is where we're going to be. Mark, thank you for that introduction. Uh, it's good to be home. Uh, as Mark said, my wife and I called Missio, excuse me, New Life Home from uh, 2001 to 2007, and then we're able to plant Missio. And uh, it's good to see a lot of old friends and, and meet some of you that are new friends as well. But um, I said this to the first service, um, who we are and what we are as Missio Day, a, a church of probably 400, if 500 people uh, in West Asheville now would not be who we are and what we are without the generosity and the kindness uh, of new life sending us out. And I think part of that was, was a, a wholehearted desire to see churches planted. And part of it was, a, okay, Scooter, it's your turn. Let's see what you can do. And so, uh, but here we are 11 years later, and it's been by God's grace and the grace of the people uh, here of new life. So thank you. It's good to be home. Um, today, as you may know, begins the season of Advent in the, the Christian church. Uh, Advent is a season that's been celebrated by the church since about the fourth century. And, uh, and Advent means coming or arrival. And really what the, the purpose of Advent is, is for us to slow down a little bit and, and contemplate the first coming, the first arrival of Jesus to die on a cross for our sins and, and, and pay the penalty so that we could be reconciled to God, and it's also a season for us to anticipate his coming again to make all things new. I don't know how it feels to you, but I, even though Christmas decorations have been out in retail stores since about Halloween, um, it feels like Christmas t t tends to come and go really quickly, doesn't it? It's just here and gone. And so Advent is a season where we can slow down a little bit and really process and really contemplate why did he come? What did it mean that Jesus came? And, and what do we do with that as we long for him to come again? Um, so I have the privilege of starting this new series today, The Songs of Christmas, looking in the Gospel of Luke at some of the songs that are found there. How many of you love Christmas songs? Just by show of hands. How many of you just want to listen to them all year long or at least as soon as Thanksgiving comes, you're in it, right? Uh, how many haters we got? Anybody who hates Christmas music? All right, we got one. A couple of brave souls. You hate Christmas tunes. I used to be a hater. I used to be a hater. Um, I think it's because my first job was at Kmart and uh, that's a whole other story. But it was during the holiday season, and it was like probably around Thanksgiving when the Christmas tunes started playing, but it was really bad. It was like the Michael Bolton Christmas album, and Kenny G, and Mariah Carey, and all these overly sappy, really sentimental garbage songs, if we're honest. And, uh, and so it made me angry, and I hated Christmas music for a long time. Until a few years ago, I started to look really intently at what I would call the Christmas hymns, some of those old carols, like what we sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. That's one of my favorite Christmas tunes. And, and to look at the doctrine and the theology that's, that's in those songs, to look at how the Old Testament is connected with the New Testament in such as a beautiful, triumphant way. And all of, all of those songs pointing us to Jesus. I love Christmas songs now. I can't get it. I still hate the, the bad ones, but I I love the Christmas hymns, the carols that are so filled with rich uh, story about the coming of Jesus. The Bible's full of songs, um, all the way back to Genesis when Adam sings over his wife, the first R&B song. You know, this sort of, uh, she's naked in front of me. He's like, hey, praise God. And so he's singing that song. There's, uh, there's the song of Miriam as she gives... Um, birth to Moses. There's, uh, Moses has a song. Hannah has a song. In your bulletin, you'll see a, a reference to 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'd just encourage you to read that on your own, but there's a lot of parallels between Hannah's song and Mary's song we're going to look at this morning, and so I just encourage you to, to read that on your own. Of course, the book of Psalms is a song book, a hymn book for the church, and in Luke's gospel, there are at least four songs. 
So today we're gonna look at the first of those, which is Mary's song. So if you have your Bible uh, open or turned on or whatever, uh, I'm gonna read the, the chapter one, verses 39 to 55, and then I'll pray for us. We'll get going here and see what the Lord has for us, okay? So Luke chapter one, verse 39 says this. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you great thanks for the opportunity to gather together as your people this morning. I thank you uh, that I get to come home and share the word with these people, many of whom I have known for many years and love very, very deeply. Thank you for your word, your eternal word, your living and active word that is sharper than any two-edged sword uh, to pierce between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. We thank you so much that we have your word before us. And as we look at it, uh, maybe a very familiar passage this morning, would you help us to hear it perhaps with, with new ears? to see things we've never seen before, to be reminded of truths we may have long forgotten and to, to find our joy in your presence by your spirit through your word this morning. We ask all this in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. Let me give you a little background just to sort of set the scene because we're, we're jumping into the middle of this passage. Uh, Luke is an early convert to Christianity. He's a medical doctor and, uh, and he's a traveling companion of Paul. And, and what he's done is he wanted to really um, write a historical account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so he sets about interviewing firsthand witnesses and all these things and compiling his account. And that's where we get the gospel according to Luke. Luke introduces us to Mary. Mary's a teenage girl in this remote corner of the Roman Empire, this little hick, nobody, nothing town, and, uh, and he's gonna illuminate her story for us. Now, you have to know that Mary's story actually starts all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis 3, verse 15, we have what many have called the first gospel. This is God proclaiming the good news to his people who've just sinned against him. When our first parents in the garden decided to be their own authority and to rebel against the gracious authority of our God, 
We call that the fall, right? The great thud in the garden when, when God's judgment had to come against sin. But even in the middle of his, of his judgment, there's a promise of his mercy. He says there's going to be one born of a woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, though he himself will be struck. This idea that there is one coming, this Messiah, this promised one, who's going to right all the wrongs, who's going to set things straight, who's going to finally and decisively deal with sin and death and evil forever. And we know that to be Jesus. So Mary's story starts all the way back in Genesis. When we get to the book of Isaiah, uh, this promise has continued and we find out that, that the virgin is going to conceive and she will be the one who bears this Messiah, this promised one. We get to Micah chapter five and there is a promise that this, this Messiah is going to be born in a little town called Bethlehem that nobody really knew about. If we go to the end of the Old Testament, we see Malachi chapter four and there's a promise that, that before this one comes, there will be a forerunner who will come in the spirit of Elijah and <clears throat> he will proclaim good news. He will proclaim that this one is coming. And all of these things we see building towards the coming of this king that we know is Jesus. So Mary's this teenage girl. She's from this tiny little poor hick town that nobody really knows of. She's engaged to a man named Joseph. She's gonna be married. But, but, but before she does, an angel visits her. This angel Gabriel, he comes to her and he says, fear not. Why did he say that? Because she was afraid, okay? If you ever see in the Bible, uh, angels visiting, we're not talking about little cutesy, chubby babies with wings like the little precious moments angels. No, angels are these fierce creations of God with, you know, that are fiery and would sort of strike fear into the heart of any man. And here's this little teenage girl scared to death at the sight of this angel who just like shows up, greetings, you know, and don't be afraid. And what did he say to her? What does he say to her? He says, you are going to be a mama. You're gonna bear this child and he is going to be the savior. You're gonna name him Jesus because he's gonna save his people from their sins. And she asks a very pertinent question. How is that exactly? Because I'm a virgin and I've never been married. How am I gonna have a baby? And of course he says, the Holy Spirit's gonna overshadow you. You know, we've sort of taken care of that as the Trinity. We, we got you covered. And by the way, your, your relative, Elizabeth, she's also pregnant. That's sort of gonna be a confirmation to you that, that Elizabeth is pregnant with the forerunner. John the baptizer is his name, and he is the one who will come in the spirit of Elijah and will be the forerunner to the king. And so Mary, in, her, in all of her teenage wisdom, she says, let it be according to your word. I'm a servant of the, of the Lord, Okay. Now, she travels. When we pick up with the text in verse 39, it says that she travels with haste to go see Elizabeth. Why did she rush out to see her? I think to see if it really is gonna be according to his word. I mean, um, how do you know the difference between you know, the Holy Spirit and a bad burrito? Confirmation, right? And so I don't think it's uh, unbelief on her part as much as prudence and wisdom to, to go and say, well, if the angel told me that I'm pregnant, he also said Elizabeth is pregnant, so I need to go there and see if she's actually pregnant. And, and so she makes this long journey. I mean, it's, it's days worth uh, by horse or camel or however they got around back then. And, uh, and so she, she comes to see Elizabeth to see whether it is going to be according to his word. Now, imagine for a moment the emotions that Mary must be dealing with. She's a teenager. She's probably no more than 14, 15 years old. She is pledged to be married. How many of you know marriage is a scary thing to enter into? 
You know, I mean, there's always that moment. I do a lot of weddings, did one in November. I got one in December, one in January, one in February. And uh, there's always that moment when I'm standing at the, at the front and the groom is next to me and the bride comes down. He gets his first glimpse of her and the, the look on his face when he realizes that his life as he knows it is over. It's, a, it's brilliant. <laughs> and she's beautiful too, but that's really the thing I cling to. Uh, it's a scary thing to pledge your life forever to another person, right? And so she's done that, and this angel says, oh, and by the way, you're gonna be a, a mom as well, you know, and your baby's God, try to do a good job, right? It's like, that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. And so she goes because she needs some confirmation, and I love the passage here that tells us as soon as she arrives, as soon as the baby in Elizabeth's womb hears the voice of Mary, the child begins to leap in her womb, which I believe is a fulfillment of, of Malachi 4.2, which says that you will leap like calves from the stalls at the sight and the hearing of this righteous one. And, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to speak a blessing and, and a word of prophecy over Mary because there is no indication in the text that Mary came in and went, hey, I'm pregnant, are you? Like, she, there's none of that. She just comes in and says, hello, and all of a sudden, Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, goes, blessed are you, the mother of my Lord. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Who am I that the mother of my Lord should visit me? And she speaks this word over Mary without Mary saying a word to her. What kind of confirmation is that? How good is the Lord? How kind is he to give her that kind of confirmation? Mary hadn't said a word to her. But Elizabeth says, blessed are you for believing what was promised to you. Amen. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Thanks for that amen. The nine was pretty dead, so I'm liking that. So let's, let's pick up with Mary's song. Look at verse 46, um, 46 to 49. Let's look at that again. It'll be on the screen uh, behind me. And Mary said, so this is her response to what Elizabeth has said to her. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What is Mary's response to this revelation from the angel, which is now confirmed by Elizabeth? How does she respond? In worship. She sings. She's rejoicing. She cannot contain herself, and so she breaks out into song. You ever been so full of joy you just want to sing? Amen. A couple of you. It's great, right? You just, your, your heart is overwhelmed. You just go, I just want to praise God. I just want to sing to him. My, my daughter, she's uh, 10 years old. She's a little blonde-haired, blue-eyed, little like, you know, Lou, Cindy Lou Who kind of, and she loves to sing and dance, and she listens to that Lauren Daigle, whatever her name is. She just sings those songs all day long in the house, and to be honest, it's a little bit annoying at times because uh, she blasts it as loud as she can in the living room. We're all trying to have conversations, but I love her heart in that, right, that she's moved to want to sing, to want to dance, to want to praise her God. But let's be honest, singing's kind of weird, isn't it? There's almost nowhere else in culture that we go and we gather corporately to sing, especially dudes, right? That's why we're all kind of standing here with our hands in our pockets, just sort of mumbling whatever's on the screen and trying not to get too involved because it feels weird, because it is. <laughs> but we do it in church. We're called to do it in church, so why? Let's answer that question. Why do we sing? Why do we worship through song? 
Because worship, especially worship in singing, is the proper response when creation sees salvation. I mean, look what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She recognizes that this one in her womb is going to be her own Savior. So yes, Mary did know that the baby she was gonna deliver would be her deliverer. Yes. This is one of three reasons that she gives. So if you're a note taker, you can, you can say this as, as we sort of summarize verses 46 to 49. We can rejoice because the Lord is a mighty savior. We can rejoice because the Lord is a mighty savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Now, you gotta understand, this song, Mary's song, it's not some cutesy, kitschy, sentimental Christian drivel that so permeates the culture of evangelicalism today. This is a theological treatise in song. In nine verses, if you read through it, what you'll find is there are at least 17 attributes of God listed in those nine verses. I'm gonna be honest, I've heard a lot of Christian songs ain't no, ain't no one attribute of God listed, All right? And, and so out of curiosity, I went to the Billboard uh, website, Billboard you know, charts or whatever, and they have a category for Christian and worship music, okay? So this is worship-oriented music. And so I thought, I'm just, just curious, because I don't listen to this stuff. What, what is, um, I'm sorry, I don't. Um, what are the top songs that are out today that, that churches are singing, that people are, and would you know that two, the top two, are both about what God says about me? And four of the top five are me-centered. So man, listen, give me the hymns, boy. <laughs> give me Give me, let's sing about God. I mean, who are we really worshiping? Who are we worshiping, God or ourselves? So here's the deal. In this song, 17 attributes of God listed. You can look at them on your own. This song is about something larger. This song is about a big, it is a prophetic voice against the times, the times then and the times now. Now, some people would elevate Mary. Some, some churches, denominations, make much of Mary and they wanna venerate her and elevate her and say, well, she was perfect and that's why God found her worthy to bear the savior. Um, and, and, and there's this sort of, we just lift her up as this special you know, sort of case. But, but do you notice in the text, Mary doesn't do that? Jesus doesn't do that? The Bible doesn't do that? What does she say? I rejoice in God, my savior. So even at whatever she is, 14, 15 years old, Mary realizes, I need a savior. I need a rescuer. I need one who will redeem me and who will make me new again. She doesn't seek to make much of herself. She's making much of the Lord. She says, I am of humble estate. The Lord has looked on me in my humble estate. In other words, she's saying, I'm insignificant. I, I, am, I am nobody from nowhere with nothing to offer and yet the Lord has found favor with me and he's gonna call me to be the mother of the Messiah. Look, for those of you who are feeling unimportant or insignificant this morning, I got good news for you. God often uses unimportant, insignificant people to accomplish some very important and significant kingdom work, amen? So if you are feeling 
unimportant and insignificant. You are in great company. You are in great company. She says, the mighty one or the, the one who is mighty has done great things for me. This is very personal, isn't it? The Lord has done great things for me. He, he knows me. He cares about me. Even though I'm from this little town no one's ever heard of in a place that no one cares about at a time no one remembers, the Lord knows me. He cares for me. He's done great things for me. And so again, if you're feeling low, if you're feeling insignificant, if you're feeling like I, I just, I don't have anything to bring to the table, you're in a great position. The Lord cares for you. He knows you by name. And he's got great things in store for your life. Hard things, but great things. The, the mighty one has done great things for me. Now, none of us can quite, quite relate to Mary, okay? Like, I know your kid is terrific. I've seen your bumper sticker, but he ain't God, all right? So we can't quite relate to Mary. But, but the reality is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have got Great reasons to rejoice in God, your Savior. Who has looked upon you when you were the lowest of the low, who, who looked upon you in your, in your ridiculous state and, and set his affection upon you and drew you to himself and saved you. He has done great things for us. I know I forget that all the time. I forget it. I, I am prone, as the hymn says, prone to wander I'm prone to leave the God I love. I'm prone to forget his kindness and his grace to me. I'm prone to forget all the great things that he's done. And I get a little uh, self-righteous and I get a little self-serving and I get a little ungrateful. So I need reminders like this. I need reminders from the scripture. I need reminders from friends about how great the Lord is and all the great things that he's done for me. Psalm 126 is one of those great passages. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad we rejoice in him. Church, Jesus is a mighty savior. Do you know him? Do you have joy in him? He is a mighty, mighty savior. Now, let's look at the next little section, verse 50. Verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great uh, sorry, he's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. We can rejoice not only because the Lord is a mighty savior, but because he is just and merciful. You ever been the victim of injustice? You ever been taken advantage of? You ever been lied about? Lied to? You ever been humiliated? You ever been betrayed? You ever been hurt? I think if we, if we did a show of hands, most of us in the room would, would say, yes, at some point in my life, I have been the victim of that kind of injustice. And, and, and what do we want when we are the victims of injustice? We want them to pay. We want the person who hurt me, who took advantage of me, who abused me, who betrayed me, who lied to me, lied. We want them to pay. We want them to get their comeuppance. We want justice. And I love that this passage 
reminds us of the justice of our God. If you look at the contrast in verses 51 and 53, what you see, he scatters the proud. He's shown that God's shown his strength and he scatters the proud. He, he brings down the mighty from the thrones that they have built. That the, the rich go away empty. That doesn't just mean financially rich, that means self-sufficient. He sends them away empty-handed, but at the same time, he exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things. There's this great reversal that this king is going to bring. He's bringing justice. This is good news for us when we're victims of injustice, right? We remember that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That we don't have to get them back because ultimately one day, whether they pay in this life or not, they will pay. And either, either they will fall before Jesus and bow before him and, and take a knee and he will save them or they will stand before him in judgment and they will bow one day as well. This king brings justice. The Bible over and over and over again says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now that's great when we are the victims. But what about when we're the perpetrators? What about when we are the ones who've taken advantage of people? When we are the ones who have betrayed others? When we are the ones who have lied about others or to others? When we are the ones who've hurt people? What do we do then? See, in my church, we've been walking through the book of 1 John this fall, and one of the things that you see over and over again in 1 John is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That his holiness, that his perfection, that his moral purity demands justice when wrongs have been committed. So what about us that are guilty of committing those wrongs? What do we do then when we are the ones who are guilty of injustice? Praise God that he is not just just, he is also merciful. He is merciful. Look at verse 50. He has shown, excuse me, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He is merciful. Now, sometimes we define mercy as not getting what you deserve, and I think that's a partial definition. Uh, and, and here's what we mean, that sin separates us from God. We know this, right? Sin, again, is our desire to be our own authority. I'm gonna call the balls and strikes in this game, Lord. I know that you are my gracious creator, and you walk with me, and you, ah, but I wanna be my own authority. That was the sin of our first parents, and we inherit that. And sin separates us from a holy God. He cannot tolerate our sin. He can't just sweep it under the rug because that betrays his justice. But God sent Jesus to reconcile sinful man to a holy God. Jesus lived in the light. He, there was no darkness in him, perfect, sinless, tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet without sin. Why? To be an example for us, to be a savior to us, because we could never be perfect. We could never be holy. So he lives this life that we could not live, and then he takes the justice that we deserve for all of our sin, for all of our unrighteousness, for all of our choosing to be our own authority. He pays the penalty of our sin. He pays the debt that we owe, and in so doing, uh, he makes atonement, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that, that he made him who knew no sin 
God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, to be the embodiment of sin for us, so that you and I, who are very sinful, could become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus received the justice that we deserve so that we could receive God's mercy. So for those who repent of our sin and trust in Jesus, we not only are forgiven, but we are loved. We are loved. There's, um, there's a Hebrew word for mercy that often gets translated, if you read your Bible regularly, you might see words like the steadfast love of God or um, the loving kindness of God. That Hebrew word is the word hesed. And hesed is such a rich word. Uh, you know, English is such a poor descriptive language. I mean, we, we have the word love and we mean like, I love tacos and I love my wife. And hopefully we don't mean the same thing by that. But in other languages, there's a bunch of different words for, for these things that have different connotations. And so there's this word hesed, which gets translated as loving kindness and steadfast love and mercy and all these kind of things. Um, but you gotta use a lot of English words to get the full meaning of what hesed means. Well, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, it's a great little resource if you've never read it, uh, even, especially if you're a new believer. It's for kids, but if you're a brand new Christian or not yet a Christian, I would highly recommend that you read this book. Uh, it's a storybook, so there's pictures, it's awesome. And Every story whispers his name. That's the subtitle. It tells you how every one of these major stories in the Bible points back to Jesus. And in the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, Sally Lloyd-Jones, who's the author, she, she writes about the love of God in this way. And I think this is the best definition of said of this mercy of God. She says, it's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Anybody in here this morning need a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love? So catch the, the image here. You are standing before God the judge. You are guilty. You, you are completely guilty, okay? And you stand before the judge and he looks at you and he's about to slam the gavel down, convicting you of your crime and sentencing you to judgment. And Jesus, your advocate, steps in and he says, put it on me and let him go, let her go. And so the judge, as he swings the gavel and declares you not guilty, you are now forgiven. But he doesn't just do that. He, he gets up off the bench. He takes off his judicial robe. He comes around to where you're standing. He puts his arms around you and he says, now come home with me, my child. In one swing of his gavel, you are not only declared not guilty, but also declared an adopted child of the Most High God. And he loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. This is the kind of love that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter eight. When he says, what can separate us from the love of God? And he goes on with this list of all these different things. Can this, can this, can that, can that? I'm not gonna go over it. You can look at it yourself. And at the end he goes, no, none of these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We belong to him. And his love for us is fierce and never ending. And in verse 53, he reminds us that, that for the saved, for the reconciled, he has filled the hungry with good things. There's echoes, shadows of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What is, 
What is he saying here? He's saying that for those of us who hunger for God, we are filled with the goodness of his spirit. We're filled with his word. We're filled with joy in his presence, Psalm 16. Right? We're given a community to fill us with those things that we're lacking so that we understand who God is and we have him. The generosity of God in Christ to us is amazing. Jesus is a mighty savior. We can rejoice in that, but we can rejoice in the fact that Jesus is also just and merciful. Have you experienced his mercy? Do you know what it feels like to not just have the burden of your guilt taken away, but to be wrapped in the righteousness and in the love of God for you? For those of you that that maybe are suffering or or enduring uh, injustice, can you trust in the justice of God this morning? That he sees what has been done to you and they will not get away with it. So Jesus is a mighty savior. Jesus is just and merciful. And then finally, this last little couple verses here, we can rejoice because the Lord keeps his promises. Look with me at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You may not see this, but let me just point out to you that couple things. First of all, Mary says he's helped Israel. That means the people of God. But secondly, do you notice that not just in these last two verses, but throughout her entire song, she sings in the past tense. He has helped his servant Israel. He spoke to our father. She's recalling Abraham and that promise that came to him in Genesis chapter 12, that he would bear a son who would be the father of all these nations and that through him would come this deliverer, this savior. You see, Mary, for her, all the promises of God are already, like they're so trustworthy, they're as good as done. She trusts him. That's massively important because it had been 400 years since God's people had heard from him. This promise came from God in Genesis 3 to Adam. It came to Abraham in Genesis 12. It went all the way through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the prophets. And there were more prophets and more promises and more prophets and more promises. And then all of a sudden, silence for 400 years. Look, sometimes we can't even hold on to a promise for 20 minutes. (laughs) Imagine generation after generation after generation. Like you don't see it, your kids don't see it, their kids don't see it, their kids don't see it, their kids don't see it, but they're clinging to this promise. One day, one day he's gonna come. And some of you know this, that, that when Jesus came, there was this heightened sense of expectation that God's people were longing for this promise to be fulfilled, for this one to come. Some gave up, but there were some who clung to those promises. And you know what? Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that God is not slow concerning his promises, but he's patient. Paul reminds us in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come, when it was just the right time, He sent his son. God knows what he's doing. 
And if he's made a promise, he's going to fulfill it. Is it hard for you to trust the promises of God sometimes? I know it is for me. Especially when you're walking through a season of drought or a season of hardship or suffering. It's just hard to see the light. And it's hard to see, yes, God is faithful. He's going to fulfill this. When you pray and you feel like it's bouncing back to you, it's hard to trust in the promises of God. One scholar mentions that he he counted 3,573 promises of God to his people in the scriptures. I love that he didn't estimate. He wasn't like, eh, 3,500. He's like, 3,573, not 72, not 74. It's 3,573. If you want to challenge that, go back, study, come back, let us know. We'll make an announcement and we clarify. But here's what that tells me. There's bound to be a promise or two that has some relation to where you find yourself this morning. Whatever circumstance, whatever situation you find yourself in, there's bound to be a promise of God that relates to exactly where you find yourself in your heart and your circumstance. Do you know the promises of God to you? Do you trust them? I'll give you four really quickly. And you only have 3,569 to go. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. How many of you need rest this morning? Weary, burdened. Do you believe that if you come to Jesus with those burdens, he'll give you the rest that your heart desires? In Isaiah chapter 40, uh, there's this great little line. Let me find it here. I don't want to screw it up. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 and 29, this is what the scripture tells us. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now here's the promise, verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Any of you feel a little faint and weak this morning? Do you believe that if you come to the Lord that he will give you strength, that he will give you power? Joshua 1.9, many, many of you know this one. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Why? Here's the promise. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's with you. Do you believe he's with you wherever you go? That he cares for you that deeply. Philippians chapter four, verse 19. Paul reminds us, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Do you have a need this morning? Do you trust that he will fulfill every need you have according to the riches of his glory in Christ? Some of you know that in uncertain times, all you've got is the promises of God. It's all you got to cling to. It's all you've got left. And church, the Lord keeps his promises. Say that with me. The Lord keeps his promises. (laughs) He does. If he has said it, it will come. Charles Spurgeon is an English preacher from the 1800s, one of my favorite 
preachers of all time, and I quote him a lot, and uh, probably annoys people, but I don't care. Charles Spurgeon said that he wrote often on the promises of God because he was a man who dealt with depression. Often he had gout, he had a lot of issues in his family, and he was a man who was just, um, without the rock of Christ, would have been uh, just totally storm-tossed. So he wrote a lot on the promises of God. And here's what Spurgeon says about God's promises. God's promises were never meant to be thrown aside as waste paper. He intended that they should be used. Our heavenly banker delights to cash his own notes. Nothing pleases our Lord better than to see his promises put into circulation. He loves to see his children bring them up and say, Lord, do as you have said. We glorify God when we plead his promises. Here's the indicting line in this. He is more ready to hear than you are to ask. He is more ready to hear than you are to ask. The sun is not weary of shining, nor the fountain of flowing. It is God's nature to keep his promises. Therefore, go at once to the throne with, do as you have said. I have never met a person yet who trusted God and found the Lord's promise to him to fail. Isn't that good news? That the Lord is a mighty savior, that the Lord is just and merciful and the Lord keeps his promises. So what about you this morning? So we've looked at Mary's song. I just can't help but wonder, what's our song? What's our song? Like if you're gonna write a song about the words about God that are on our lips, what would we sing? What would we write? What words about God are on our lips this morning? Do we have joy? Can we sing? If not, and listen, I talk to a lot of people and most people, uh, um, when I ask this question, I, I get the same response. Very rarely do I hear people say, you know what, um, I'm doing great in life and like on the joy meter, I'm killing it, right? Like just, at, no, we, we all could use a little bit more joy, amen? So think about your life. Think about where you would be if Jesus had not shown himself to you as a mighty savior. I know some of you got saved in Sunday school when you were like four and you don't remember, you just grown up in the church your whole life. And that's an amazing testimony, by the way, that the Lord spared you from so much of the world. Some of you had some really dark circumstances and the Lord snatched you out of that. And you got a lot to be grateful for. Imagine what your life would be like if the Lord had never rescued you, if the Lord had never stepped in with his might to save you. Does that give you some joy this morning? Imagine what your life would be like if you only knew the justice of God and not his mercy to you. If your only experience of God was justice and not mercy. What would happen if you had no promises of God to cling to? If God could not be trusted, imagine what your life would be like. No, no, no. Scripture reminds us and there are hundreds in this room who would testify to the fact that Jesus is a mighty savior, that Jesus is just and merciful, and that Jesus keeps his promises. Doesn't that make us wanna sing, church?
celebrate. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to the end of this gathering, I want to give you great thanks for your kindness to us, allowing us to look into your word and to be encouraged, challenged, I hope, as well, but encouraged that you are a mighty Savior, Jesus, that you are just, but you're also merciful to us and that your promises can be trusted. Help us now, wherever we find ourselves. Some of us have not crossed that threshold into faith yet, and it is possible this morning to simply in our seats cry out to God, even silently, and say, Lord, I need a Savior. I know that I am broken. I know that I cannot save myself, and I need you to save me. And you promise us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. Make it so this morning, Lord, as you have said. For others of us who are just in a dark place or in struggle and trial, Lord, help us remember that you are with us, that you are merciful and just, and that you will deliver us from whatever situation we find ourselves in. And Lord, for those of us who are just enjoying your, your grace to us right now, help us to be an encouragement to others. May we all remember your promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are always with us. We love you. We thank you for this time together. And we pray your blessing over our time of response now. May we be filled with joy in your presence as we sing this closing song. We ask this in the name of Jesus and pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.